Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. For over 175 years, four purposes have defined Hillsdale's mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to our brothers and sisters at Hillsdale for their great sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. to be back with millions and millions of you in our audience, our friends, our national town hall meeting. It's a great pleasure. All is well. Our number is 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. We have a lot going on this afternoon in some parts of the country, this evening in other parts. I wanted to jump into something many of you may not expect me to jump into first, but I am because it is a very, very important lesson on how you lose your country. How you lose your country to the phony, self-appointed elites, self-aggrandizing narcissists who use liberty to destroy liberty, who use the law to destroy the law, who use democracy to destroy democracy. Our ally, Israel, is supposed to be a democracy. With competitive parties and competitive views and competitive elections. But it's turned into something else. It's turned into something else. The law enforcement bureaucracy, that would be the police... And the prosecutors, and yes, unfortunately, judges, are colluding and conspiring to run the country. The genius of our Constitution is that the framers gave us a Bill of Rights. Now, they gave us a Bill of Rights after the Constitution was adopted because the states demanded it or they weren't going to adopt the Constitution. It didn't really work out that way in Israel. Israel followed mostly the European parliamentary style. 
Most of its founders were of the left, socialists, and so forth. To make it easy for we Americans, the Israeli parliament's very much like the Italian parliament, and in my view. But to remember, over the course of several years, election after election, Benjamin Netanyahu and his party Likud would win. They'd certainly win more votes than any other party. But they never seem to be able to form a government. There are always one or two or three Knesset members short. That's all it would take. You look at the current government, the Prime Minister Bennett. I think he had five or six members elected. Out of 120. That's not democracy. But that's not my focus this evening. Ever hear of the Pegasus software, uh, excuse me, spyware system? It's a cell phone hacking system made by Israel's NSO group. To quote fish for intelligence even before any investigations been open against the targets. In other words, it's so sophisticated that it's enormously controversial. It's controversial in our own country. The FBI started to flirt with it and people were objecting. They were objecting because, well, it might be used illegally. It might be used against the citizenry. Can you imagine police using that system against the Prime Minister of Israel, his family, his friends, his ministers, his closest advisors and confidants, without anything akin to a court order, or court ruling, or court oversight? If I were to tell you that's what's been going on in our allies' country for several years now, what would you think of that? According to Calculus, if that's how it's pronounced, which is a news forum, Israeli police used the NSO's Pegasus spyware against top government officials, journalists, and activists, most of whom were confidants of, or surrogates of, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. According to Calculist, it was used against Benjamin Netanyahu's sons, his advisors, without a court order. It was used, uh, Avner Netanyahu, who they've dragged in as a co-defendant in his trial, Iris Elovich. And let me give you some of the lists so you get the magnitude of what took place here. Number of mayors throughout Israel. Netanyahu's media advisors, La Paz Luck, Yonatan Urich, were targeted alongside head of the workers' union, Yair Katz, a son of an ally of Netanyahu. Karen Turner, former director general of the Transportation Treasury Ministries. Shai Babad, former director general of the Treasury Ministry. Imai Palmar, former Justice Minister, Director General. Avi Berger, former Communications Ministry, Director General. Shlomo Filber, former Communications Ministry, Director General. Rami Levi, 
businessman, Yair Katz, who I mentioned, Avraham Elad, former editor of the Walla website, one of the guys who they blackmailed, in my view. More on that in a minute. Elon Yahusha, former Walla CEO. Stella Hendler, former Bezev CEO. These are business people, obviously. Avner Netanyahu, I mentioned, uh, Netanyahu's son. Iris Elovich, co-defendant in Netanyahu's trial. Yoram Shimon, uh, of the Masrit Zion Council head. Miriam Fairberg, Natanya Mayer. In other words, a lot of these um, allies of Likud or Likud are allies of the Prime Minister Netanyahu in Judea and Samaria. The former phones of former Finance Ministry Director General Shah Abib, the former Justice Minister Director General Imar Polmar, I mentioned, Transportation Ministry Director General Karen Turner, she was also reportedly, they were also reportedly hacked, and a lot more. Number of businessmen and journalists, former government officials involved in so-called Case 4000 against Netanyahu were targeted by police hacking efforts. Is this not shocking, Mr. Producer? They were spying on, hacking into the phone calls of people all around the Prime Minister, including his family members, his closest advisors. This is what happens when you don't have a rule of law, let alone a just rule of law, and this obsessive hate by the left and the bureaucracy and the journalists of Benjamin Netanyahu, one of the greatest leaders of modern times, in my view. In fact, two of the witnesses that have been used or will be used against the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, were blackmailed. One of them, who was a close associate of the Prime Minister's, turns out he was having an affair. And uh, first they put him in a flea-infested holding cell for a period of time. Then they do a brutal interrogation. Then they basically threaten his family with the information about his mistress. Then they bring his mistress through the hallways of where he's being detained so his mistress can see, excuse me, so he can see that his mistress is going to be interrogated. Meanwhile, even before all this was known, the entire case was falling apart. These various charges were all falling apart. The so-called government's best witnesses were turning on the government. They, several instances, became Netanyahu's best witnesses. And the charges that have been brought against Netanyahu are utterly preposterous. So broad, so ambiguous, that they could be used really against any member of Knesset. And when you're charging people with criminal activity, you need to be more than ambiguous and broad. You need to be very specific about the elements of the crime that you're talking about. But this is on top of that. This is on top of that. And so this, as you can imagine, for people who actually think and people who are actually concerned 
and people who actually believe in justice and the rule of law and so forth, among those people, it's causing quite a stir over in Israel. Let me be blunt. Let me put it simply. They tried to take Netanyahu out. They trumped up charges against him. They spied on people. No doubt they took notes about what they said. They put the shoulder on witnesses, blackmailed some witnesses. They were using private information or information gotten by Stasi tactics, the old East German Stasi tactics. They have brought complete discredit to their state of Israel, complete discredit to their democratic processes, complete discredit to the rule of law. And this is what happens. When you have a police state, in effect, where the police are working with political prosecutors effectively, an attorney general, who is a complete disaster, obsessed with taking down Netanyahu, a media that do not do their job as a check on, on various elements of power, instead they're taking the side of the opposition to Likud and Netanyahu and trying to take them out. This is what happens when the elements in a free society begin to unravel and, cra- and, uh, and crumble and are devoured by the radical left. The radical left controls the judiciary in Israel. It's not a serious judiciary, not by any outside standards, not by ours. I mean, ours are barely serious, but look at theirs. The media, the media in, in Israel have no standards whatsoever. Well, that's not true. They do have standards. Take F after Netanyahu and Likud. That's it. That's it. I could name reporters over there. Real crackpots, if you ask me. They don't have a Fox News over there or a conservative radio over there, not to any great extent. So there's nothing to balance them. I mean, even in the United States, our... our powers of, of limit, but over there they have almost nothing. A paper here and there, a, a podcast here and there, but that's, not, that, that, that's no match for, for the media left oligarchy. So here, Benjamin Netanyahu is held to the highest esteem in our country, who has brought his country to, to a pinnacle of economic success, that stands for national security, effectively fought off the Iran deal, and on and on and on. During his terms, the U.S. embassies moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The Golan Heights, Israel's sovereignty over it is recognized by the United States, and 50 other things in our relations with them. All while he and his associates were being targeted by the police state. And you know the situation today, America? They may not cancel the case, the trial. In the United States, we have a doctrine called fruit from the poisonous tree. If law enforcement or prosecutors or anyone involved in that kind of activity breaks the law in the 
access to or accumulation of quote-unquote evidence, it's all thrown out. And if it's bad enough, the whole case is thrown out. You know what the government's arguing here? Well, we still have their testimony. So they blackmail witnesses, and they say their testimony's still good. Now we're going to find out very, very soon if Israel, when it comes to the law and justice, is a paper tiger or not. Because this is disgusting. I'll be right back. Mark in. My friends, I know you love freedom and want to defend it. And I know you love the Constitution. Well, so do I. And it's the same with Hillsdale College, the best liberal arts college in America. Hillsdale's mission is pursuing truth and defending liberty. It gives its undergraduate and graduate students the best education, and it is working to make this education available to all. But today, I want to tell you about Hillsdale's free monthly speech digest of liberty. It's called Imprimus. Over 6 million households and businesses receive Imprimus for free every month, and you can join them by subscribing at levinforhillsdale.com. There are no strings attached. Generous donors who love freedom make it possible for Hillsdale to send Imprimus to you for free. And Primus is one of my favorite publications. It's short, smart, useful, and fun. Start receiving your own free copy of this great digest of liberty. Visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. So you have, as I understand it, the small newspaper that breaks this. But the rest of the media in Israel didn't break it because they didn't want to look. They didn't want to know. Do you know, this was found out by accident. By accident. It wasn't found out by the judicial system. Prosecutors didn't say anything. It was found out by accident. As I understand it, before one of the days of, of a trial, or at least during a discussion about an hour before... The police were talking about what they had done. And it was overheard by other authorities who passed that information along by pure accident. And then when all this was arising, the push for Netanyahu to resign, to cut a deal to never serve in politics again. All the demands made of him. If this isn't the greatest threat to the Israeli governing system in civil society, as great as any exterior enemy, then I don't know what is. They're destroying... My friends, I know you love freedom and want to defend it. And I know you love the Constitution. Well, so do I. And it's the same with Hillsdale College, the best liberal arts college in America. Hillsdale's mission is pursuing truth and defending liberty. It gives its undergraduate and graduate students the best education, and it is working to make this education available to all. But today, I want to tell you about Hillsdale's free monthly speech digest of liberty. It's called Imprimus. Over 6 million households and businesses receive Imprimus for free every month. And you can join them by subscribing at levinforhillsdale.com. 
There are no strings attached. Generous donors who love free to make it possible for Hillsdale to send in Primus to you for free. And Primus is one of my favorite publications. It's short, smart, useful, and fun. Start receiving your own free copy of this great digest of liberty. Visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. The Mark Levin Show, live and national at 877-381-3811. You know, we were talking at the break here. What was it, Rich? March 6th or something? 2017? Something like that? March 5th on a Thursday where I was pulling together these various public news articles. And they all had a very similar uh, theme. Excuse me, a very similar theme about um, Trump and the FBI and the Russians and the FISA court and everything. And I pulled them together, 8, 10, 12 articles, because I smelled a rat. Because having served as chief of staff to an attorney general, I smelled a rat. And there were rats. And I said, apparently they're spying on Trump or the Trump campaign or somebody. And I went into some discussion about this. And I came under attack. I came under attack from the very phony news sources that were printing this stuff. I didn't make it up. It was them. And then, of course, I came under criticism because everything I read didn't have the facts exactly right. Well, I wasn't in on the illegal conspiracy. So how would I have the facts exactly right? I'm an outsider. I don't have subpoena power. I don't run a grand jury. I can't depose anybody. I don't have a right to documents. So I'm on the outside with you, looking in, and taking a measure of all the information I have. And it did turn out, didn't it? That they abused FISA, that they were that they were uh, examining different people when they would catch them on different uh, wire uh, eavesdropping uh, information, and on and on and on. So we got it right. We got the sense of it right. And I'll bet you we chased off a lot of future activity that would have gotten even worse, like it has with Netanyahu here, spying on Trump. But I want to turn attention, not a lot of it, to Jeremy W. Peters of the New York Slimes. And the headline for this story the other day was where Fox News and Donald Trump took us. As you can imagine, he didn't like Fox, doesn't like Fox, Ailes, Fox News, Fox News hosts, and so forth. And of course, he never spoke to me, but that's the nature of the uh, phony journalism today. But he goes on like he's writing a novel about all this stuff. Brings up Chris Ruddy, brings up Glenn Beck brings up, uh, let's see here, who else does he bring? Sarah Palin, and of course Sarah Palin got in trouble because she announced on my show, radio show, that she wasn't going to run for president. Because she and I were friends. And other sorts of information here that he would never write, of course, about CNN. And it's my understanding with people he has talked to, he's been on the chase for a long time. Including on mine, Mr. Producer. Uh... Jeremy uh, Peters. Didn't he write a book not long ago that nobody read? I think he did. But regardless, 
Jeremy, why don't you just listen to us and take us for our word? Why do you have to build all this intrigue and drama around what takes place? There's no conspiracies. Nothing. And what do you mean where we took? What's the title again? Where we took, uh, where they took us. Fox News and Donald Trump, where they took us. Now the left is schizophrenic. Actually, it's worse than that. But that's okay for now. They can't decide if conservative talk radio has no reach, as ineffective as losing ratings, or if it's the most diabolical, powerful force in the nation. They can't decide if Donald Trump is forever defeated or if he'll come back and win another election. Now, they're not for a free press. They're not for differences of ideas. They want Fox destroyed. You have this guy, Brian Stelter. I've been making fun of this eunuch for years. Others have now joined in the pack, and that's fine. I like when they join in. A little original thinking works from time to time, I would tell them. But nonetheless, it is what it is. This guy's dumber than he looks, and he looks very dumb. He truly does. Helter Stelter B.S. Brian Stelter. And with his pre-bubescent voice, he sounds like Minnie Mouse. And of course, I don't hold that against him. It's just an observation. Hey, hi, everybody. How you doing? No, I, I don't have the greatest voice. But he is the worst voice. You get the difference? And it always starts the same way. I don't watch his show. You see the clips. If you watch Fox, you see his clips day and night, and I don't blame them. Because he's an idiot. Hey, everybody, how you doing? Now, let me tell you about the latest thing on Fox. Fox and the Fox this and Fox that. Meanwhile, he covered up his boss's affair with his other boss. That'll blow over real fast. Because when leftists have affairs, it doesn't matter. They're expected to have affairs. They can have affairs with their friend's wife, with dogs. Doesn't matter. If they have affairs, it's okay. Eh, whatever. Because they're proud of the fact that they don't have any morals, you know. Well, we don't. You know, we're not like the Orthodox Jews and the Evangelicals, you know. No, you're not. See, look over there. It's, it's a mess. I don't know why anybody will watch it except for comedy. Might be funny to watch these people who are on their last legs. They truly are. Uh, but nonetheless... So, I would, first of all, I would say this to Jeremy Peters. How can you work for the New York Times? How can you work for a corporation that gave propaganda voice to Joseph Stalin while he was slaughtering the Ukrainians? Not that long ago, you know, less than 100 years ago. Matter of fact, 90 years to the year. Or a newspaper that did all it could to basically play down the Holocaust. And it's chief correspondent in Berlin. Kind of took a liking to the Third Reich. You aware of that, Jeremy? That's not that long ago, Jeremy. What, 70, 80 years ago? Yes, Jeremy, 80 years ago. Or a newspaper that brought 
certainly helped bring Castro to power in Cuba. You know, you guys like Castro for sure. You're out of the closet on that one. But you're not alone. Obama is all the Democrats. And all the murder and mayhem he brought to that island country. And just the general, you know, ethnic hate and anti-Semitism and racism that your newspaper promotes. And yet here you are, worried about where Fox News and Donald Trump took us. Where did the New York Times and Franklin Roosevelt take us? Hmm? Where did the New York Times and Franklin Roosevelt take us? And where is the New York Times taking us today? But he's worried about Fox. Because Fox dares to... And yeah, it's not, it's not a corporate thing. I can tell you this. I do this Sunday show, right? Nobody ever calls me and tells me what to do. Ever. They might say, you want to think about that? Because, uh, not really. But we don't all get together and say, hey, let's be, be conservatives. The hosts are very competitive one to the other. I'm, I'm not involved in this every day. I do Sunday, you know. But he goes on, Donald Trump and Donald Trump. They're so obsessed with Donald Trump and Donald Trump that they're even embracing Mike Pence now. They hate Mike Pence. Remember? Remember they used to mock him in America? Because of his faith, because of his fidelity to his wife. Uh, look at Pence there. You know, he's, uh, he's a throwback. Now they use Pence against Trump. Unfortunately, I think Mike, who's a friend of mine, sort of has bit the hook, bitten the hook, and, of course, Mark Short uh, bit the hook, and it went right through his cheek. Right through his cheek. They go on these shows, and they are used to attack Trump rather than understanding and figuring out how to spar with these reporters who are clearly on the side of the Democrats. And no matter who the Republican nominee is, they're going to try and destroy that nominee. They do not support that nominee. Why don't they ask me about January 6th? Why don't they ask me about electors? Why don't they ask me about what the Constitution says? The first hour of my show, what was it, two Fridays ago, Rich? Or was it Friday at all? I don't remember anymore. When I spent an hour talking about this entire subject? We need to post that separately. Can we do that? Let's post that separately. Because I walked through this, step by step, and I'm not going to do it again unless I have to. The fact is, Vice President Pence... And certainly March Short. And the self-appointed constitutional experts, National Review and elsewhere, Wall Street Journal, do not have the foggiest idea that the framers intended the Vice President of the United States to have substantive authority or not. They don't have the foggiest idea. Because they never said. And yet they go on television and radio and they write because they have a definitive view of this law that was passed in 1868. Excuse me. Now, and, and 
They want you to think that that law is definitive. About election counting. That was 1887, whatever the hell it was. And, of course, it's ambiguous, but it doesn't matter. Constitution trumps that statute. And no Congress is bound by the prior Congress, especially when it comes to this. And as I pointed out, no, 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 no. The problem was the litigation strategy of the Democrats, their elected judges in the states, their governors who might be Democrats in the legislature, Republican, or what have you, and the violation of Article 2, Section 1. Clause 2. That was the real insurrection. So it would be much better if the vice president, former vice president, would say, you know what's interesting? This is kind of new territory since the passing of that statute over 100 years ago, 120 or so years ago. And then explain why he did or didn't do what he did or didn't do. But they don't have a definitive answer to this. It's like a mob mentality now. A mob mentality. Do you agree with me on this? Yes, I do. Oh, okay. Then you're in. You're okay. You must be smart. You're a constitutional expert. Actually, you're not any of those things. If the vice president had said, look, the Supreme Court doesn't want to take a position, but Congress has the ultimate authority here. And if I become aware that a governor has usurped a state legislature under Article 2 of the Constitution, or a state court has imposed certain changes in elections that affect the selection of electors in violation of the federal Constitution, and if the Supreme Court believes this is a political question under the political doctrine, and it's up to me and others to make that decision, or at least to consider that, that's not the vice president choosing the president. That's the vice president interpreting the Constitution, which may or may not result in the selection of a president one way or another. There's a big difference. I'm so sick of dealing with stupid people who self-appoint themselves as legal analysts. I'm so sick of it, you have no idea. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. My friends, I know you love freedom and want to defend it. And I know you love the Constitution. Well, so do I. And it's the same with Hillsdale College, the best liberal arts college in America. Hillsdale's mission is pursuing truth and defending liberty. It gives its undergraduate and graduate students the best education, and it is working to make this education available to all. But today, I want to tell you about Hillsdale's free monthly speech digest of liberty. It's called Imprimus. Over 6 million households and businesses receive Imprimus for free every month. And you can join them by subscribing at levinforhillsdale.com. There are no strings attached. Generous donors who love free to make it possible for Hillsdale to send in Primus to you for free. And Primus is one of my favorite publications. It's short, smart, useful, and fun. Start receiving your own free copy of this great digest of liberty. Visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Levinforhillsdale.com. 
We have a situation now, ladies and gentlemen, where Biden and his flunkies are negotiating a new Iran deal, giving them tens of billions of dollars and God knows what else. And um, only 27 senators are demanding to know what the hell's going on. Only 27 Republican senators, nearly 30 Senate Republicans sent a letter to Biden today, this Politico, obtained by National Security Daily, demanding that he give them a say over America's re-entry into the Iran nuclear deal, or they will try to block the move. Stating the president's statutory obligations, let senators weigh in. It says we're committed to using the full range of options and leverage available to the U.S., that is, U.S. Senators, to ensure that you meet those obligations, that the implementation of any agreement will be severely, if not terminally, hampered if you do not. We reiterate our view that any agreement with Iran regarding its nuclear program is of such gravity for national security that, by definition, it is a treaty requiring Senate advice and consent. Furthermore, genuinely robust nuclear agreement with Iran would be compelling enough to secure assent from two-thirds of the Senate. And the only reason not to present it for a resolution or ratification is that it's too weak to pass muster. How the hell do you negotiate an agreement with an enemy like this by the most incompetent boobs to ever serve in Washington, D.C., and uh, not inform the body... That is supposed to... Let, let, me, let me put it to you. We've had this discussion over the years. The treaty provision has as its purpose a very high bar. Two-thirds of the senators present must approve of a treaty. So what presidents do is they call it something, ah, it's just a side agreement. Ah, you know, just, and not in this case. As I argued back then, this is a real treaty. But then you had guys like Bob Corker, Mitch McConnell, and others who buckled. Who came up with some cockamamie scheme to make sure that Obama could get his deal, but they could vote against it. So you at home would think that they were opposed to it, when in fact they greased the skids to make sure it would pass. Remember all that, Mr. Producer? We spent a lot of time talking about that. And so what's going on now is Biden's not even telling Congress what he's doing. He's not even the Senate is who he needs to tell, and he's not doing it. And only 27 senators, 27, you know, Susan Collins is too busy out there trying to fix gerrymandering, and the Democrats are killing us on gerrymandering, killing us. Because we have people like Susan Collins, who talks like Katherine Hepburn on a good day. When we come back, I'm going to demonstrate to you that Dr. Anthony Fauci always supported gain of function. This segment of the podcast is exclusively sponsored by Pure Talk. Pure Talk offers great coverage and can save your family money on your wireless bill every single month. Go to puretalk.com to find the plan that's right for you. Thank you again for listening, and thank you so much for this sponsorship, Pure Talk. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin.
Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. There is a publication, fairly uh, scholarly one, in fact, called Inference. Volume 6, number 4, Thunder Out of China. This piece just came out by Yuri Dijin, D-E-I-G-I-N. Not sure exactly how it's pronounced. It's a fairly long article. This individual's done an enormous amount of research. He's a biotech engineer with a background in drug discovery and development. Thunder out of China about the virus. Now, you may recall on Life, Liberty, and Levin, uh, we were the first to bring in an expert who'd been the former chief editor of the science pages of the New York Times. And... Uh, he was the first to really demonstrate that all roads led to the Wuhan lab. Uh, he couldn't conclude so uh, with absolute certainty because he couldn't visit there. But he was looking at all the information, all the facts, all the science information that was available, and that was his conclusion. Well, this gentleman writes in part, and I encourage you to read it. Uh, will we be able to link to this, Rich, or not? We should. We will link to this on MarkLevinShow.com. Anthony Fauci has been the director of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infections Disease, that's NIAID, since 1984. Over the last few decades, he has expressed his support for gain-of-function research on numerous occasions. In a 2011 op-ed for the Washington Post, co-authored with Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, between 1993 and 2019, they made the case for viruses engineer, quote, engineered in isolated biocontainment laboratories, unquote, as a means to identify, quote, genetic pathways by which such a virus could better adapt to transmission among people, unquote. The benefits were not elaborated in detail, the author is simply noting that, quote, important information and insights can, can come from generating a potentially dangerous virus in the laboratory, unquote. The op-ed concludes with a brief consideration of the risks involved. Now, the following year, Fauci published a paper entitled Research on the Highly Pathogenic H5NI Influenza Virus, The Way Forward, again making the case for gain-of-function research. In his commentary, Fauci acknowledges the question of whether, quote, knowledge obtained from these experiments can inadvertently affect public health in an adverse way, even in nations multiple time zones away. He then invites the reader to consider a hypothetical scenario concerning an important gain-of-function experiment involving a virus with serious pandemic potential performed in a well-regulated, world-class lab by experienced investigators. The information gleaned from the study is then used by another scientist who doesn't have the same training of facilities and is not subject to the same regulations. Here's what he writes. In an unlikely but conceivable turn of events, what if that scientist becomes infected with the virus, which leads to an outbreak and ultimately triggers a pandemic? Many ask reasonable questions. Given the possibility of such a scenario, however remote, should the initial experiments have been performed and or published in the first place? And what were the processes involved in this decision? Fauci's answer is unequivocal. Scientists working in this field might say, as indeed I have said, he writes, that the benefits of such experiments and the resulting knowledge outweigh the risks. Hello! That the benefits of such experiments and the resulting knowledge outweigh the risks. 
is more likely that a pandemic would occur in nature, and the need to stay ahead of such a threat is a primary reason for performing an experiment that might appear to be risky. And in his conclusion, Fauci acknowledges, quote, genuine and legitimate concerns about this type of research, but his message remains clear. The research is worthwhile and important. Of course, no amount of -of gain-of-function research has helped the world to, quote, stay ahead, unquote, of the COVID-19 pandemic, nor can any advance of virological gain-of-function research explain exactly how one can stay ahead of nature. At the end of 2012, Fauci spoke at a workshop on -on gain-of-function research on HPA1, H5N1 viruses hosted by NIH. There's disagreements to the scientific and or public health value of these experiments, he remarked. But I believe people who feel they shouldn't be conducted are in the minority. Did you know all this? I didn't. But you see, he's been for gain of function for some time, and he's argued for it for some time. And yet he plays it down. During Fauci's tenure at NIAID, the NIH funded numerous studies involving coronaviruses and gain-of-function research. In 2015, the NIH supported a study led by Ralph Barrick, a virologist from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the WIV's SHE. Published in Nature Medicine, their paper described the creation of a, of a, the result of a spike, a chimera, the result of a spike protein gene from a bat coronavirus being pasted into a mouse-adapted SARS virus. The completion of this study was only possible after Barrick received an exemption for his research from NIH officials. In October 2014, the White House Office of Science and Technology instituted a pause in new funding for gain-of-function research after a series of biosafety incidents at federal research facilities. They also recommended those currently conducting this type of work, whether federally funded or not, voluntarily pause their research while risks and benefits are being assessed. Barrick wrote to the NIH's Biosecurity Board to plead his case, and his exemption was granted. Three years later, following the election of Donald Trump, Fauci played a key role in NIH's decision to resume gain-of-function research. The NIH funded a new study that expanded on the WIV's 2015 work with Barrick, creating eight novel chimeric coronaviruses. When the 2019 SARS-CoV-2 outbreak occurred, work at the WIV was underway. This is the uh, Wuhan. Uh, on further research under yet another round of funding. In his May 2021 U.S. Senate hearing, Fauci claimed that the NIH-funded research at WIV did not constitute gain-of-function research. He was emphatic in his denial because his memory was defective in its scope. In a February 2020 email that Fauci sent to his subordinates obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, an attached PDF of the barrack sheet paper was labeled SARS Gain-of-Function. Fauci had at his command virologists willing to offer him their advice. Christian Anderson was among them. Having consulted with his colleagues, Anderson sent Fauci an email on February 1, 2020, uh, also obtained under the FOIA, in which he claimed that the SARS-CoV-2, that is the COVID, uh, genome looked engineered and was, and, and, and what is more, that its genome was inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. So he specifically got advice from Christian Anderson, one of his colleagues, who said it was inconsistent with this animal-to-human jumping that they've been talking about. Within hours, Felchie held a teleconference with Anderson, Sir Jeremy Farrar, director of the Wellcome uh, Trust, Collins, and several other virologists. 
A June 2021 article by USA Today reported the details of what was said in the meeting, including extensive notes taken by one participant. And further thoughts shared by others were blacked out by the NIH before the emails were made public under FOIA. Interviewed for the same article, Fauci recalled, was a very productive back-and-forth conversation where some of the call felt it could possibly be an engineered virus. Others, Fauci said, felt the evidence was heavily weighted toward the virus emerging from an animal host. Although the details of the conversation remain opaque, when the preprint of Anderson's Proximal Origin paper appeared several weeks later, what had before looked engineered now looked natural. In other words, his position had changed or shifted. When the Fauci emails were published in June 2021, the shifts in Anderson's views were greeted with consternation. It had been the WIV's release of the genome for a viral strain called RATG13, Anderson later explained that it changed his mind. Curiously enough, though, Anderson had tweeted about that a week before writing his initial email to Fauci. So in other words, he was aware of it when he wrote his initial email to Fauci, suggesting it's hard to believe that this could be, uh, you know, monkey to human or animal to human uh, passage. And rather than attempting to resolve all these inconsistencies when they were pointed out to him, Anderson instead chose to first delete the offending tweets, delete them, and then to delete his Twitter account altogether. According to Anderson's senior colleague, for our other co-authors of the Proximal Origin paper, were initially even more convinced the virus originated in the lab. Farrar later described the events surrounding the meeting with Fauci, Collins, Anderson, and all in his book, Spike, The Virus Versus the People. Before the call on February 1, Farrar says Anderson was 60 to 70 percent convinced the virus came from a lab. While Australian virologist Eddie Holmes was 80% sure this thing had come out of a lab, Patrick Valance, Britain's chief scientific officer who joined the call, tipped off intelligence agencies about their concerns, but others on the hour-long call argued the new virus was more convincingly explained scientifically as a natural spillover than a lab event. Afterwards, the participants swapped notes, but Farrar remained torn on the origins. On a spectrum of zero is nature and 100 is released, I'm honestly 50, he emailed Fauci. My guess is this will remain gray unless there is access to the Wuhan lab, and I suspect that's unlikely. The emails obtained under the FOIA revealed that three days after the call with Fauci, Anderson and Barack assisted Dozak in drafting the letter that subsequently appeared in The Lancet, denouncing what, in an email, Anderson would call the crackpot and fringepot hypotheses that it was engineered. In other words, the guy who was initially skeptical by a significant percentage, flipped and then joined in assisting the drafting of the letter, that phony letter that went to Lancet that was really authored mainly by a guy who got a grant from Fauci's uh, operation. So I will cut to the chase here as the gentleman goes on. The current SARS pandemic has been and continues to be a public health catastrophe, the most serious in a century. Questions about the origins are at once matters of legal, financial, and moral concern. For the moment, researchers can do no better than to hope for an inference to the best explanation. For the moment, the best explanation seems to be the virus escaped from the Wuhan lab. Wuhan was the biggest transporter of viruses to Wuhan from all over Asia, including SARS-like viruses from Laos and Yunnan. Uh, analysis shows that the SARS virus outbreak was perfectly localized in Wuhan, all, as all strains that have been found on other locations are descendants of the Wuhan strain. 
The virus has been circulating undetected in other parts of China. Virologists would have eventually noted those pre-Wuhan strains and their descendants. Uh, even after sequencing over 6 million SARS no- genomes, no evidence has been found of pre-Wuhan SARS-CoV-2. In other words, he's saying it had to come from the lab. Not only was the lab the biggest reserver of SARS-like viruses in Wuhan, if not the world, scientists were engaged in creating novel SARS-like and MERS-like chimeras and potentially supercharging their transmissibility and pathology. With these circumstances in mind, consider the following facts. I'm going to finish this, Rich. One, Xi and Jing were experts in spike protein, these are lab scientists, and were working on a pan-coronavirus therapeutic to inhibit post-cleavage fusion of the virus. Two, Jing had previously created a novel furin cleavage site. Three, and it goes on. Taken together, these points make the, uh, the insertion that has created a novel furin cleavage site in SARS so uncharacteristic. So he says, what's the bottom line? None of these points is in and of itself conclusive, but the circumstantial evidence is more suggestive of a lab leak than an act of nature. There's an additional reason to take seriously the question at hand. It is prophylactic. Knowing at last that COVID-19 had its origins in that lab would go some way toward enforcing a worldwide ban on gain-of-function research that is almost as useless as it is dangerous. Point is, ladies and gentlemen, Fauci has always supported gain-of-function research. And has funded it. So when he went in front of Rand Paul, who was confronting him on this, and said, well, we're playing semantics and everything. In my view, he lied through his teeth. He lied through his teeth. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Inflation under our current administration is at 40-year highs. Everything's more expensive. Cars, gas, groceries, housing, cost of living increases are bankrupting Americans, which is why you need to find areas in your life where you can actually save money. And your wireless bill is one of them. Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile all overcharge you for the same service you could be getting from Pure Talk at a fraction of the cost. That's why I'm a customer and why you should be one, too. And listen to this. The more lines you have, the more you save. Right now, you can get four lines, talk, text, and data for just 64 bucks. That's not per line. That's total, which is how the average family is saving over $800 a year. Find out how much you can save. So do this. Go to puretalk.com. Find the plan that's right for you. Find the phone that's right for you. Or just bring your own. Then this month only, enter promo code LEVINPODCAST, and you'll save an additional 25% off your first three months. That's puretalk.com, promo code LEVIN, L-E-V-I-N, podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to have our friend Mark Meckler with us, who's breaking his backside here, fighting for a convention of states, and his wife and in the convention of states group. And uh, his father had quite a spill the other day. I I won't get into it, but uh, I'm just thrilled. We're just thrilled that uh, he's doing much much better. Um, but in that, we'll move on here. So. Uh, Mark Meckler, how are you? And you have some news for us, and you need some help. Yeah, I do. So, Mark, uh, first of all, thanks for the well-wishing for my dad. He's doing much better. I appreciate that. So, look, in the last couple of weeks, it's been incredible for Convention of States. I know you all already reported on this. I was on. We talked about we had a victory in Wisconsin. That was number 16. 
Subsequent to that, we passed the South Dakota House, and then we passed Nebraska, so we're at number 17. That's the halfway mark. But here's where we're at right now, and here's where we need help. So we're in the South Dakota Senate. You assume this is a very conservative state, but the committee voted it down. Now, our grassroots and a bunch of our champions like Senator Kurd and Tobin and Wick and Bull and Stalzer, these guys did what they call a smoke-out maneuver. They got it forced out of committee, and it's going to the floor. It's going to hit the floor tomorrow. It takes 18 votes to make this the 18th state for Convention of States, and it's going to be tight. It shouldn't be. You would think it wouldn't be in a state like South Dakota. And by the way, the, the House blew it out. It was 60% vote. And, but we're, we're struggling a little bit in the Senate. There's a bunch of fence-sitters. And here's one of the things that I'd love you to comment on, Mark, because I'm really surprised by this. All over the country, everywhere I go, the Sierra Club, the ACLU, Common Cause, all of the radical Marxists are sending their paid lobbyists to try to defeat us. Of course, they're standing next to the John Birch Society, the 12 folks from that group. They use all the same talking points. So those are the groups that are opposed to us. And so right now we are on the precipice in South Dakota. We're about to go. It'll go to the floor tomorrow. And the real question is, which of the Republicans are going to stand with the Marxist Democrats? And who's going to stand with the citizens in the Constitution? So I'd love your comment on, like, why would Republicans do this? Remember who blocked it in the Senate in Arizona, Mark? Oh, yeah. It was a Republican. Who, who was it? That was Andy Biggs. Who is on Fox, who everywhere is viewed as a strong conservative, right? That's correct. Now a congressman. Because they don't comprehend what this is about. You and I used to oppose it. You actually have to study this. It's not about being knee-jerk. The same people who wrote the rest of the Constitution put that language in there for exactly this circumstance, where Congress is out of control, where the federal government's out of control, and they do not apparently understand the amendment process. It takes 34 states to effectively convene a convention of states. 34. Not a majority, a supermajority. It takes the same 38 states, that is, the legislatures by vote or by convention, 38, to amend the Constitution. That's not changed. 38 states, that's a big damn, that's 33-fourths of the states. How are you going to have a runaway convention, apart from everything else, if 38 states have to ratify? Moreover, a runaway convention, I guess people aren't looking around at the court system or looking at Biden and the Congress. We have a runaway convention. It never stops running away. It never stops changing our constitutional system. And these Republicans... In these state capitals, many of them, these Republican leaders are very comfortable with what's taking place. The McConnells and in a lot of the state capitals. They're perfectly fine with whining and complaining and telling you folks who vote for them, whining and complaining about the left, about Washington, everything. And when the rubber hits the road, they really don't want to change it, Mark. And I want to carry you over, if I may, because this is important. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Thanks, Mark. If you folks who live in South Dakota, we need your help. Get on the phone, call your state senator, and tell them we are monitoring them. We are monitoring what's going on. This isn't some damn game. I'll be right back. Inflation under our current administration is at 40-year highs. Everything's more expensive. Cars, gas, groceries, housing, cost of living increases are bankrupting Americans, which is why you need to find areas in your life where you can actually save money. And your wireless bill is one of them. 
Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile all overcharge you for the same service you could be getting from Pure Talk at a fraction of the cost. That's why I'm a customer and why you should be one, too. And listen to this. The more lines you have, the more you save. Right now, you can get four lines, talk, text, and data for just 64 bucks. That's not per line. That's total, which is how the average family is saving over $800 a year. Find out how much you can save. So do this. Go to puretalk.com. Find the plan that's right for you. Find the phone that's right for you. Or just bring your own. Then, this month only, enter promo code Levin Podcast, and you'll save an additional 25% off your first three months. That's puretalk.com, promo code Levin, L-E-V-I-N, podcast. Mark Levin, the cure for the common liberal. Talk to Mark now at 877-381-3811. So, Mark, whatever the reasons are, they're misplaced. And the Republican leadership always talks about how the Democrats don't do this and the Democrats don't do that. Why don't they let their people vote? And let their people vote. And why don't these people understand that what's at stake is our constitutional system, that they represent the ability to fix this this is the only way to fix it is it not it is the only way mark and i'll tell you one of the things that's so astounding to me and this is going on in south dakota right now i just had a conversation with a senator who's kind of on the fence and i always ask at the end this question like okay if it's not this then what is it we all agree that the system is crashing the Marxists are in control. They're trying, they're trying to pack the courts. They want to get rid of the Electoral College. They want to add states. So if it's not this, what is it? And I never get an answer. Because mm-hmm. it's usually just generally, you know, I don't know, but I'm scared of this. And that's my frustration. And one of the things that I ask these leaders to do, and usually it's a problem in leadership. It's not the rank and file. It's usually in the leadership. And what I ask them is to lead. The reason we have the country we have is because at some point leaders stood up and said, we're going to do this thing. And other people said, it's too risky, it's scary. And the leader said, we're going to do this thing. We're going to stand and we're going to fight. And that's what we need right now in South Dakota. We've got citizen leaders are doing that. I have great state leadership there. Shirley Meyer, you'd love her. She's over 80 years old and just absolutely cranking it. Harvey Fitzgerald and his wife. But we need leadership in the legislature in South Dakota right now. We need 18 votes. 18 votes makes this the 18th state for Convention of States. Good Lord. I mean, it may really makes you wonder how we, how we got a Constitution in the first place. Because there they were really putting their necks out on the line. Um, they didn't have a republic. Uh, they were taking really extraordinary steps to create this central government, this, this national government. Here we're just suggesting a few amendments to help fix what's going on and... You would think that we are the ones trying to turn this system inside out. This system's being turned inside out right now. And so, rather than takes to the streets, rather than become Antifa or Black Lives Matter, all the rest of it, we are following the Constitution. I don't know why these guys and gals are so afraid. The Constitution empowers us. That's what it, This language is in the Constitution. This language was adopted by the same people who adopted all the rest of it. And so when you hear these, these state senators, in this case, in South Dakota, saying, I'm concerned about it, that means they're not textualists. That means they're not originalists. 
There's nothing to be afraid of. Milton Friedman said this was really the only way to fix things. Even Dwight Eisenhower looked at it and said this was probably the only way to fix things. Eric Dirksen, many of you older people like me, you know who he He pointed to it. Uh, and as a matter of fact, James uh, Madison pointed to it as a way to trying to avoid uh, what would become the Civil War. So this is a very, very important lever that we have. And if we don't use it, we're going to lose it. Right, Mark? Yeah, look, I mean, it's there. It's for us to use. It was put in there for a time such as this. You know, another thing I'd like to address, Mark, is I get people and senators and, and state legislators who question me, like, who are you? Are you some kind of secret leftist? I get accused of being funded by Soros. I know you and I have known each other for a long time. I remember the first night we sat down and had dinner together. Would you mind talking a little bit about, because you know the history of this organization and, and an independent kind of third-party view on that? Well, the organization came it came to be around the time my book Liberty and excuse me, my book uh, the Liberty Amendments came out. Mark and I hadn't coordinated, we hadn't planned. It's just that so we studied this issue, and at the same time, we said we uh, we need to push this. We didn't say it together. We never talked about it in any coordinated way, did we? No. No, we we had no advanced discussion. We were both very surprised to find the other one involved in this issue. That's right. And that's how that started. Uh, and uh, but Mark Meckler is a solid conservative. He's co-founder of the of a, a one of the biggest taxpayer groups in the country. Uh, and then he decided that he needed to focus on really a constitutional fix to what was going on in this country. And he started a convention of states. So any Republican lawmaker that accuses you of that, they're typically rhinos or they don't know what else to say or that sort of thing. But to me. This is the vote. So in South Dakota, Levinites, contact your, your members of the state Senate. And if they're on the fence or they don't vote the right way, then that's a reason to vote them out. That's a reason to vote no. You have a historic opportunity to create a majority now, effectively, right? To create yeah, more than we need know, a majority. Right now- if you look at the number of states right now, it takes 34 to get to convention. We currently have 31 states with both houses controlled by Republicans. We just flipped half of the legislature in Virginia, so that'll take us to 32 in 2023. Minnesota is a split legislature right now. I think that house is going to flip. That'll take us to 33. We're on our way to 34 states. The runway is built to convention right now. Mm-hmm. And it may be now or never, folks. That's my view. It's now or never, and if not now, then when? And keep up the good work. So, Mark Meckler, if people want to get involved in tomorrow's vote and get involved generally, where do they go? Go to conventionofstates.com, click the petition, sign that. That will automatically go to your state senator there in South Dakota or anywhere you are all over the country. We need you all over the country. And then click the Take Action tab and volunteer. And by the way, we got South Carolina coming up, North Carolina coming up, West Virginia coming up. There are a lot more states lining up to pass this right away. We're hoping tomorrow South Dakota becomes number 18. You can be involved at conventionofstates.com. All right, my friend. Keep up the good work. Let us know tomorrow. Call in and tell us what happens. Will do. Thanks, Mark. God bless you. And God bless you and your, your family. You take care. His father had a horrendous injury, but he's okay. He's recovering. His father's 83. Um, but uh, they're wonderful people, the Mecklers. They're patriots, as you can tell. This is what he's been committed to, and it's very, very important. 
I noticed some uh, liberal hack in a grocery store in Alexandria, Virginia, was harassing the new Republican governor. He wasn't wearing a mask. And, of course, she was. And she should. Matter of fact, she should wear a bag over her head. As so many liberals should. As a matter of fact, have you noticed, as a rule, Mr. Producer, conservatives are more attractive-looking than liberals? Have you noticed that? And about uh, 8 to 10 pounds lighter. I've noticed this. I have noticed this. Anyway, so she's in a grocery store and uh, she starts yelling at the governor. She sounds like uh, Joy Behar. So all of my, well, you know, with her, with her voice. So, all, so the cats start meowing and the dogs start barking and the mice run for the hills with that kind of voice. Sort of a uh, Brian Stelter in a dress. Brian, not that there's anything wrong with that, mind you. Anyway, so, uh, you know, he's not wearing a mask, and look around you, everybody's wearing a mask! Shut up, you idiot. Go eat an apple or something. Then she, she makes another snarky comment. You know, I have to say, folks, even if I were in a grocery store or supermarket and there would be a Democrat, I would never talk to them. I told you, when I was on Amtrak, shockingly, I bumped into Joe Biden, I think the guy actually lived on Amtrak and the kosher hot dogs they serve in the food bar over there, a food train, food car, whatever. He even, he even had his own seat over, over here, Mr. Biden. Over, over where? Oh, that's his seat. Oh, okay, great. It's right next to the bathroom. Can I say that, Mr. Producer? Short walk. Hop, skip, and a jump, and there he is. But anyway, I didn't attack him or say something. I could have. There's not a damn thing he could have done about it. You know, years and years ago, Rush went to a wedding. And he, he told everybody he bumped into Hillary Clinton. And he was very polite. In other words, he wasn't gushing over her, slobbering over her. He was very polite. And Rush took a lot of criticism. And he asked me, he said, what would you say? I said, I would say, that's not my wedding, and I'm not going to create a scene and be disruptive at somebody else's wedding. That's what a gentleman does, behaves himself. And he agreed. So it's okay to say things, and don't get me wrong, but to be yelling stuff at the, you know, nasties at the governor, what did she want him to do? But this is the way the left is. Have you noticed that liberal, I should say left-wing birthing people or would-be birthing people in particular, Mr. Producer, conduct themselves this way? I think so. I do. Mr. Producer's silent. He doesn't want to get in trouble. It's okay. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin'.
Inflation under our current administration is at 40-year highs. Everything's more expensive. Cars, gas, groceries, housing, cost of living increases are bankrupting Americans, which is why you need to find areas in your life where you can actually save money. And your wireless bill is one of them. Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile all overcharge you for the same service you could be getting from Pure Talk at a fraction of the cost. That's why I'm a customer and why you should be one, too. And listen to this. The more lines you have, the more you save. Right now, you can get four lines, talk, text, and data for just 64 bucks. That's not per line. That's total, which is how the average family is saving over $800 a year. Find out how much you can save. So do this. Go to puretalk.com. Find the plan that's right for you. Find the phone that's right for you. Or just bring your own. Then, this month only, enter promo code Levin Podcast, and you'll save an additional 25% off your first three months. That's puretalk.com, promo code Levin, L-E-V-I-N, podcast. The governor of Virginia has ordered that parents can decide if their children are to wear masks or not. Not government bureaucrats whose salaries, pensions, medical benefits, eyeglasses, and legal fees you and I pay. Jeremy Puff, writing at the Washington Examiner, security official for Loudoun County Public Schools in Virginia, directed principals to obtain a warrant from a magistrate. If students attempt to enter the school without wearing a mask, the latest escalation in the Commonwealth's mask wars... What mask wars? There is no science to back this up. None. Zero. The email was sent on February 1 and came as loud and elected to defy Governor Glenn Youngkin's executive order allowing parents to opt their children out of school mask mandates. State judge in Arlington issued a temporary restraining order. Now, Arlington is filled with leftists, and these judges are appointed by leftists. Against Yunkin's order Friday, which the governor's office said would be appealed, Clark told Loudon's principals that the Loudon Police Department and the Loudon County Sheriff's Office had informed the district that they would not enforce a suspension letter, no trespass, without a trespass summons or warrant being issued from a magistrate. The chief of uh, the sheriffs here, Mike Chapman, is a very solid guy. So he said, no, unless you get a judge uh, to compel us to do it, we're not going to do it. Okay, principals, go get it. Go get him. What about that rape in the bathroom? What rape in the bathroom? You know, the guy in the dress with all the protections and rights walked into the girl's bathroom and raped the girl. And we're not aware of that. I'm sorry. Officer, would you please throw them out? They're trespassing. If you determine that an individual should be trespassed, then a school administrator representative in conjunction with SNS coordinator, SNS coordinator, more like SS coordinator, isn't it, Mr. Producer? Rich Thomas will proceed to the magistrate to swear out a trespass summons and warrant the emails. School administration will meet Rich Thomas at the safety and security office and then proceed to the magistrate, which is located next to our office. If the warrant is obtained, the email says it'll be served by law enforcement, a process that could take up to 24 hours. Hello? Yes, we're having dinner. Who are you? I'm Detective Franks. I don't really want to be here, but your school got a warrant. For what? 
for the arrest of your child. What do you mean the arrest? Let me put it to you this way. If he comes to school again tomorrow and he's not wearing a mask, he's trespassing, for which he will be charged. He will be charged. Oh. And if he gets to the school wearing a mask, he's taught critical race theory and boys don't need the whatchamahoozie and girls need the whatchamahoozie and if you're in between you're probably a model citizen do not show any identification because we do not want to discriminate against illegal aliens just wear the damn mask wear the damn mask LCPS that would be the Loudoun County Public Schools aka the Loudoun County Pubic Schools does not have the authority to arrest or charge any suspended students or their parents for trespassing, the Superintendent Ziegler said. Ziegler! Ziegler. Sounds familiar. Ziegler. Furthermore, Elsie... By the way, Ziegler, you're a big, fat, white guy. If you really believe in equity and critical race theory, you're like the last guy who should be superintendent of the Loudoun County pubic school system. You should take your papers and your 40-pound pot belly and leave. And say, look, I'm leaving. I want a non-binary, preferably birthing person, or not, to take my place. They should have the following tones of pigmentation. And then he can, he can leave. Ligler said no uh, Loudoun County students have been arrested on charges of trespassing and that media account stating that uh, the school is arresting students are not accurate and create fear and potential. How about the email, dummy? And who trusts this guy? Was there a rape? Anybody here know if there's a rape? I don't know. I never heard of it. No, they're covering up a rape. So this guy is going to be believed. Any student who's suspended from school and returns to school property without administrative permission may be issued a trespass notice. This is standard practice. So you're trespassing in your public school if you're not wearing a mask that has no scientific value whatsoever. You know what the students need? A union. A union, just like the teachers. So the whole bunch of them can go on strike. That's what I would do. Loudoun County, all over the country, all the counties, you parents and kids, form a union and make your demand. That's what I would do. I'll be right back. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, 
deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, Well, it's a pleasure to have my friend who served as the ambassador to Israel from the United States, most successful ambassador to Israel in the history of Israel and the ambassadorship from the United States to Israel, David Friedman. David, how are you, sir? Hi, Mark. How are you? Great to be with you. Well, I am doing great. Sledgehammer. What a fantastic book. How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. Why is the book called Sledgehammer, first of all? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's a metaphor for the, uh, for the efforts that uh, was required of me to kind of break through both the internal um, uh, headwinds that I faced in the State Department that were constantly battling up against uh, the policies that the President and I and others uh, were, were looking to advance. And it was also, uh, in particular, a name that the New York Times used to describe me, uh, particularly when I used a sledgehammer to unveil a, uh, an incredible archaeological site in Jerusalem. And after doing that, apparently it offended the New York Times, and they, uh, they referred to me as a sledgehammer pejoratively. But uh, the reality is that that really was the type of tool that was needed to, uh, to make progress uh, during the Trump administration. We had lots of... Uh, Lots of headwinds, as you know, and, and, and we had to be tough. Now, you know, I need, I need everyone to know, not that they don't already, that my stepson worked for you over at Israel's as, as a special assistant. And um, you accomplished many, many things there, uh, working with President Trump, working with Secretary Pompeo, working with others on the staff and so forth and so on. And I think what you've tried to do in this book, which, you know, I read earlier, it's a fantastic book, folks is to try and lay out a, a guide map for future generations and future administrations, too. So first of all, let's address that, and then I want to address whether you think that's actually happening today. You become the ambassador. First of all, was becoming ambassador difficult? Did you have quite a nasty fight on Capitol Hill? How did that go? Yeah, it was, uh, it was disappointing um, because, uh, you know, in, in the history of the uh, position, I was the 20th U.S. ambassador to Israel. The other 19 um, uh, were confirmed by the Senate uh, essentially unanimously. It was always uh, done by voice vote, always with the recognition that the President of the United States ought to have the discretion to choose his ambassador. So here, um, it, was the, it was the most contested appointment in the, history, in the history of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for an ambassador. And, um, and 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 the, the thing that really bothered me the most was this argument that I did not seek to advance a bipartisan uh, U.S.-Israel relationship. Uh, what I what I sought to advance was a strong U.S.-Israel relationship, and I wasn't willing to uh, you know to, to to reduce my 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 objectives to the lowest common denominator and make people on the far left who who frankly uh, did not have Israel's best interests at heart. You know, to, to placate them. So, you know, I, I took an unapologetic, uh, um, uh, uncompromising view that America needs to support Israel uh, as being in America's best interest. Uh, the idea of a of a two-state solution, uh, which had become uh, 
uh, State Department orthodoxy uh, for 50 years. The idea of that uh, ought to be ought to be rethought and revisited, and that um, uh, the Palestinians were not reliable uh, peace partners, and 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 those views uh, were 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 so out of what the far left considered to be the mainstream, even though they're all patently obviously true. That I, I had a hard time, and it, and it bothered me. It bothered me when people like uh, Chuck Schumer, who uh, professes to be so pro-Israel, uh, when he uh, refused to vote for me uh, entirely for political reasons. You know, I sat with him and I said to him, "Look, uh, we all want bipartisan support for Israel. You're the uh, at that point he was the Senate Minority Leader. You know, you have the ability to to, to drive this this vote." And he said, "Look, you're going to win anyway. What do you care?" And I said, "Well, I care because I think it's important for Democrats to support Israel too." And he wouldn't he wouldn't go with me. Now, uh, by the way, that's a badge of honor where I sit. Now, um, <laughs> you get confirmed, you go over there. Were you a little skeptical already that the bureaucracy would be very difficult to deal with? Uh, from the first day, from the very mm-hmm. first day. You know, I was, uh, uh, I think within a day or two of getting there, I was invited to a, a, a ceremony where uh, Israel was celebrating the 50th anniversary of uh, the reunification of Jerusalem. And uh, two hours before I, uh, I was off to the ceremony, I got a call from the State Department, a senior person telling me that I couldn't go. And I said, why not? And they said, well, because it's uh, too controversial. And I said, how in the world could the reunification of Jerusalem be controversial? Uh, you know, the, the Western Wall was a parking lot for camels and donkeys before it was reunified. And Israel yeah. reunified it. They made it into a beautiful prayer area. They made it open to all faiths. Why would I, would I not be celebrating that? And they said, well, you can't go. And I said, well, I'm going anyway. And, you know, call the president if you want. You want to tell him what you think. If the president calls me and tells me not to go, I won't go. Otherwise, I'm going. And I went. And I'm glad I went. And it set the course uh, in the right direction, really, for the next four years. And, of course, the president uh, would, would never have suggested that I not go. And, and, and nothing happened uh, as a result of my going. And then we, we moved forward. And, and almost famously now, uh, somebody told you... Uh, something to the effect that when you serve in this position, you shouldn't be so Jewish. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I got a call one day. Uh, it was about this time. Uh, we were preparing for the president to uh, to make his visit to Israel. He was going to uh, Saudi Arabia, Jerusalem, and then the Vatican, all three um, major uh, Abrahamic faiths. It was actually the the uh, the harbinger of, of great things to come. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted the president to come to the Western Wall. It, he, he was the, he became the first sitting president to come to the Western Wall. I fought hard for it. A lot of opposition. And out of the blue, someone calls me up and says, you know, Mr. Ambassador, just a word of advice. Uh, don't be so Jewish. You know, remember, uh, remember that you represent the United States, not the state of Israel. Don't be so Jewish. And what did you say? And it's I, I in was the floored. book, but what did you say? I, I, I was floored. I mean, <laughs> the first thing I said was, look, you know, I'm not a politically correct guy, but just that, why do the laws of political correctness apply to everybody but Jews? I mean, would you say this to a uh, to anybody of any other ethnicity? If an African American was working on the African desk, would you say, "Don't be so African"? I mean, it's unthinkable that anybody would make that comment. And of course, I'm. You know, I said, "Do you think I'm under any disillusion as to who I represent and who I work for?" I mean, uh, how could you? Because I want the president to come to the Western Wall. Uh, you think I'm you think I'm somehow betraying the United States? I mean, what kind of a absurd comment is that? So, yeah, look, uh, this, Mark, these things all made me stronger, and 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 I'm glad that they happened early because they they got me, you know, moving in the right direction and and thinking 
uh, you know, how to play this game of, you know, three-dimensional chess uh, a few steps in advance because I, I knew what I was up against. So it actually, in a sense, helped me to understand that thinking early on. And just so there's no confusion, you're a patriotic America. You're there representing the United States of America. Now, let, let's swing into this a little bit. You, you've, you've spent years watching these processes in the Middle East fail, people banging their heads against the wall, the heavy-duty focus on the Palestinians. What do the Palestinians want? I mean, you had Clinton that was going to give the Palestinians everything, basically. Um, and you saw that, and you learned from that just as a citizen. And so you go over there, was peace of a broader kind always in your mind as ambassador? Oh, sure. I mean, look, that, you know, when, when you go to an area of conflict, uh, your goal better be to try to reduce that conflict. I mean, of course, uh, you, uh, and, and that was the president said to me, he said to me from day one, you know, he said, David, this is, you know, lots of ambassadors, you know, go to cocktail parties and, uh, and, and uh, black tie dinners. Uh, that's not your job. I want you to make peace in the Middle East. That's, that's your job. It's a working job. It's a working position. I, I accepted it. I accepted that challenge. Uh, and I told him up front, I said, look, um, Palestinians are going to be very difficult. I mean, we're looking at, uh, you know, two groups of leaders. One is Hamas. They're a, they're a terrorist organization. The other is the Palestinian Authority, which isn't much better. And, and uh, we give them lots of money, and they take the money, and they, uh, they, give, they pay stipends to terrorists and their families to kill Jews. So, you know, I'm starting off. Uh, you know, you know, deep in the hole here uh, with with the Palestinians, but there's lots of other, you know, nations. 22 nations in the Arab League, only two of which at this point, uh, uh, Egypt and uh, Jordan, have relations with Israel, and those relations aren't even that great. So there's a lot to do here. I said you know, to the president, and uh, and that was also the Israeli government's view that you know the Palestinians are 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 really, it's a real long shot because of the leadership, not because of the people, but because of the leadership. But, uh, you know, the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, was, was very much optimistic, and he'd, he'd said it many times before I got there, that there could be openings with, uh, with some of Israel's neighbors in the region. And, and so, uh, you know, we were always looking for ways to, to, to make the area more stable and more peaceful. When we come back, this idea of the Abraham Accords, where did this come from, or did this just sort of develop as... Uh you guys were talking to one country after another, or that there were there were overlapping interests between Israel and these other countries, like Iran, the concern there, and so forth. So when we come back, this is David Freeman, the best ambassador from the United States to Israel in history. The, look, the proof is in the pudding. Or as I like to say, the proof is in the kefilta fish. Anyway, the book is called Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. And folks, you're going to find this fascinating because it's not a sterile book. about. You know, he talks about the ins and outs and the negotiation that they're doing and the different personnel. It's not a tell-all book, that sort of thing. But it is very, very uh, compelling if you want to know how diplomacy works and so forth. We'll be right back. Mark Levin. The book is called Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. And I think that subtitle kind of says it all, Breaking from the Past. So David Freeman, former ambassador to Israel from the United States, how, 
how did this come to pass? How did this manifest itself, breaking with the past? Who thought this through, or was it a group thing or a gradual thing? How did that happen? You know, it really began early. Um, it began um, in May of 2017 with the uh, first overseas trip by, uh, by President Trump. He, uh, he goes to Saudi Arabia. He convenes 50 Muslim nations, the leaders of 50 Muslim nations, all in the royal palace, and he delivers a speech. And, you know, you compare this speech to the Obama speech in Cairo, right? I mean, it's just so different. He, he looks everyone in the eye, and he says to them, we're all fighting the same thing. We're all fighting radical Islamic terrorism. But you have to fight it first, because it's coming from here. And I'm looking to every one of you to do your part to combat radical Islamic terrorism. I don't want to fight it on my side of the Atlantic. I want you to fight it here. And if you fight it here, you will find that the United States will be a very, very good and, 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 and uh, earnest partner in your efforts. And, and you know, um, you watch all the faces in the room, and it was such a different speech. And he said, look, he said, Israel's not going anywhere. You know, it's not going away. Forget that. Forget, forget all the, you know, all the uh, narratives of the past and, and start thinking about building a better, better lives for your children and your grandchildren. He gave that speech. Okay, nothing happened the next day. Of course, you know, he went to Israel, he went to the Vatican. But, but that's where it began. The, the idea that, uh, you know, and, and not every country uh, took it the same way, but some did. And, and you know, several years later, I, I sat down privately with the foreign minister of, uh, of uh, the Emirates of, in, in Abu Dhabi, and he said the same thing, you know, four years later. He said, you know, the world's different. The, the nations of the world are not fighting each other as much as the ideologies of the world are fighting each other. The, the extremists are fighting the moderates. And the moderates come from, in all shapes and sizes, there are moderates who are Arab, there are moderates who are Jewish, there are moderates who are Christian, there are moderates who are, who are, who are secular. But we have to get together to fight the extremists, because the extremists are the existential risk to all of us. And, and, and that really was kind of the, the germ of an idea that, that, that began early, and we ran it through for four years. And the, the, the real breakthrough was when we destroyed the Palestinian veto, because up until, you know, up until 2020, there was this kind of working assumption, and of course, you know, the famous speech by John Kerry in 2016, that it was utterly impossible to make peace between Israel and any Arab nation without the Palestinians uh, having peace first. And, and, and that, was, that was the wisdom that permeated the State Department and all, all you know, the, the diplomatic elites, the pundits, the great, the great thinkers for 50 years. And, um, and, and we, broke, we broke that ice, we broke that mindset, we broke the Palestinian veto. How did we do it? Well, the first thing we did is we moved our embassy to Jerusalem, right? Everybody, you know, this was the law of the United States. The Congress passed the law by overwhelming margins in 1995 to move the embassy to, the, to Jerusalem, and no president ever did it. And the Palestinians felt, well, you know, if the president of the United States is afraid of us, so afraid of us that he won't move an embassy to Jerusalem, we can sit back and just keep saying no until we get what we want. And, um, and, and, and President Trump was having none of that. He made a promise. It was the law of the land. It was the right thing to do. And, of course, as you know, having been to uh, Jerusalem many times, Jerusalem is undoubtedly the capital of Israel. So we moved the embassy, and nothing, nothing happened. The world didn't explode. Uh, there was no explosion of violence, and the Palestinians uh, clearly uh, were shown that they didn't have a veto. We did the same thing with the Golan Heights a year later. Uh, obviously, Israel has better rights to the Golan Heights than, than, than a butcher like Bashar Assad, who turns chemical weapons on his own people. And then we began to formulate a peace plan. 
that for the first time um, in history um, recognized Israel's security needs with regard to the Palestinians. But it, but it was a fair plan. And, um, and we put it out. And the Saudis looked at it, and the Emiratis looked at it, and Bahrain and other Arab countries, and they all said, you know, this is, this is a good start. This is a good start. The Palestinians ripped it up. They ran to the Security Council. They ran to the Arab League. But at the end of the day, the, 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 the moderate nations within the Arab League looked at it and said, this is a good start. And then they looked at the Palestinians, and they saw their reaction. And, and they began to realize, you know what? If we are going to um, allow the Palestinians, you know, Hamas and the PA, you know, rogue, rogue regimes, if we're going to allow them to get between us and Israel, we're making a big mistake. I mean, we can't love the Palestinian people more than their own leadership can. You know, their, their leadership has failed, and we're not going to allow that failure to hold back our own national interest. And the national interest of all these countries, all these moderate Islamic countries within the region, was absolutely to be with Israel, to be aligned with Israel, to be aligned with Israel against Iran, to be aligned with Israel in terms of the technology, in terms of the relationship with the United States, educationally, culturally, it was all in their interests. And once we broke the Palestinian veto, the, the dominoes began to fall. Now, were there more countries likely to line up uh, before the election? There were, the election, there were unda- yeah, for sure. Listen, we, there were some countries, I think, you know, the, and, and the, the big one, of course, is uh, Saudi Arabia, because they are the... Uh, they are the center of the Muslim world. They hold the, uh, they, they, they're the keepers of Mecca and Medina, which are the, the two holy cities to, uh, to Islam. And, um, and they're moving in the right direction. And, uh, you know, I think they wanted to hedge their bets until after the election. Uh, I think they were concerned that a democratic uh, administration, you know, might not, uh, might, not be some, not, might not be in their best interest. And so they waited. Um, if we would have won, uh, I'm, I have no doubt Saudi would be on board right now. Um, I think we would have gotten some, some, some big countries. So I think we could have gotten Indonesia, which I think has the largest Muslim population in the world. All right, world. hold it right there. Oh. Hold it right there. We have a little break to take. I'm talking to David Freeman, the book. It's a fantastic book called Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. I mean, it explains how the whole new uh, approach was taken that makes a huge difference. We'll be right back. Levin, the research arm of conservative media. Call in now, 877-381-3811. The book is Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. I will say this to you, uh, Levinites out there. This is the most complicated part of the world for so many reasons, as you well know. And in many ways, it's the most dangerous with Iran trying to get... Uh, nukes on their ICBMs and so forth. And this is such a compelling read explaining how they come into, this administration comes in, um, Ambassador Friedman had never been in the diplomatic corps, President of the United States, never been in in government and so forth. The uh, uh, Secretary of State had never been in the executive branch. He'd been CIA director, but really not a diplomat, and how common sense and the best interests of the United States and our allies took precedent, and how they had to duke it out with the State Department, and not just the State Department, the State 
department equivalent in other countries. And how they managed to do that, there's a story that's never been told. It's not going to be told in big media. It's not going to be told with anything on PBS uh, because they're part of the Trump administration. They were actually very, very successful. And so this is a very uh, compelling and intriguing book. It's Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. So it it should have universal appeal is what I'm trying to say. That is, these are principles and practices they put in place. And if they work in one of the most complicated places in the world, they'll work, period. And so this is not the sort of thing that ought to be thrown away. Uh, I want to ask Ambassador Friedman... Are you concerned with the direction of the current administration? I know it's not polite to, to raise such things, but I mean, now with Iran, we have Republicans in Congress saying, we don't even know what they're negotiating. You get little bits and pieces that are leaked. Even some of our allies are saying we're too soft on Iran. Um, when it comes to the Palestinians, it seems like they have circled back to the approach prior to yours and the Trump administration and so forth. Is this causing you concern? Yeah, regrettably, it's causing me a lot of concern. Um, you know, people ask me, uh, you know, what are you concerned most about, the policy towards the Palestinians, towards Iran, towards the uh, towards the Gulf? What, what concerns you? What, what really concerns you more than anything else is that America will lose its ability to lead the world, that America will lose its its moral authority and its uh, and its uh, sense of its of strength and sense of right righteousness that it needs to lead the world and the world needs from America. You know, the uh, to me, you know, it, sometimes sometimes pictures are the most important things. And you know, going back in history, there there have been some iconic pictures that have either for good or for bad changed the world. There was the you know planting the flag in Iwo Jima changed the world. Uh, the the priest, the Vietnamese priest who self-immolated in Hanoi, changed the world. The the picture of Afghani's clinging to the window uh, to the wheel wells of American aircraft as the United States uh, abandoned uh, its friends, its neighbors, its allies, and its own citizens in Afghanistan, I think has changed the world. I think that is seared into the psyche of billions of people, including me. And seeing that, that makes me worry more about Israel than anything else, because what it tells me is that people uh, are, are rightfully going to doubt the leadership of the United States. And if America doesn't lead, if America doesn't lead the world, Israel is, is not in a good place, including lots of other places also aren't, aren't in a good place. But that's what makes me the most nervous. Now, you know, look at look at Russia. Um, under Obama, they took uh, Crimea, right? They didn't do anything with us. They, did, they didn't dare. And now, uh, one year into uh, Biden, and they're, gonna, they're, they're poised to take, uh, to take Ukraine. Uh, the Chinese are, are, are running an infomercial on, uh, on NBC, for uh, what a wonderful country they are, even though they put uh, a million ethnic Muslims in concentration camps, steal our technology, treat their people uh, horrifically. Um, and, and we have, you know, half the Fortune 100 companies are rushing to, uh, to sponsor that infomercial. You know, we're chasing Iran. Uh, we're chasing Iran and, 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 and lifting sanctions against them with nothing in return. And then we have, we have the, the temerity, the, the State Department has the temerity to say, well, we only lifted civil sanctions. We didn't lift any... Um, military sanctions. The money's all fungible. You give Iran money, who cares what pocket you put it in? You're, you're putting money into a rogue regime. And so these, these, things, uh, these things concern me enormously. You know, it wasn't the way we, we viewed the world. And the world, you know, the world's a small place. You know, people say, well, Trump was um, America first. 
uh, and, and he was America first, and, and so am I. But being America first doesn't mean that you neglect the interests of America abroad. It doesn't mean America alone. Uh, it's a small world. You know, uh, you know, 100 years ago, we, we would be protected by the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Now, you know, um, there's nothing to protect us from, from, from cyber warfare, from economic warfare, you know, from the fact that uh, we don't manufacture anything. We've exported all our manufacturing abroad. You know, I got a... Uh, I got a COVID. Uh, I got a box full of COVID tests. Um, finally, uh, waited yeah. a long time for them. I got a bunch of COVID tests. They're all made in China. You know, yeah. it says in the box, made in China. I mean, so yeah. I mean, you'd have to be you'd have to be asleep not to be concerned. And uh, you know, as somebody who took great pride in in the Trump administration, you know, it wasn't perfect, but you know. If you look at where we started and where we ended up, we, we made the world a better place, a safer place, a more prosperous place. We dealt effectively with rogue nations. We, we, we stood up to our adversaries. We stood unflinchingly with our allies. Uh, we're not doing that anymore. You uh, spent a lot of time with President Trump before he was president. You were one of his lawyers. Um, you got to know him very, very well uh, when it came to nominating someone to be ambassador to Israel. You were it. Um, tell the uh, audience what President Trump is like when you're talking to him, when, you're, when, when, you know, when he's not under attack well, by the media and so forth. Well, unfortunately, he's almost, he's almost always under attack. But, you know, when, uh, you know, look, he, he's, 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 he's a loyal friend. Uh, I, you know, he's a, uh, his heart's in the right place. He, uh, he loves America. He, he cares deeply about about America. Um, I think when he wants to, when he says "Make America Great Again," it's not. It wasn't a slogan. I think he he looked at every opportunity to to bring jobs back, to bring high-paying manufacturing jobs back. He wants to keep America safe. He wants our enemies to 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 be disincentivized to make any mischief. He wants to stand with our allies. And um, and 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 he's and he's a really good um, uh, executive. I mean, I would I always the reason I thought he'd be a good president was because the President of the United States is the chief executive, and, 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 and Donald Trump was always a really good executive. He knew how to manage people. He knew how to make decisions. He knew what to read and what not to read, what to get bogged down in and what not. He, did, he didn't get bogged down in details if he didn't, he didn't think he had to. Uh, he, could, he could manage uh, a lot of different issues at the same time. He was good at uh, uh, empowering people, hiring good people. If he trusted you, he gave you a huge amount of uh, authority and runway. He did that for me when I was the uh, ambassador to Israel. Um, uh, you know, he's, um, uh, he really, I think, uh, you know, you know, people want to focus on, on, you know, on, on, on some, some of his, his tweets and his language. Look, I mean, he, he was so transparent. He was so, uh, you know, like, like every day he'd run into people and just stop and give press conferences for, uh, for an hour. So he was so unscripted right. on the, on the biggest stage uh, of the planet. But yeah, there were some unforced errors along the way. You know, if I was scripting him, I wouldn't have written. But but in, in, you know, in the broad scheme of things, they were they were nothing, and and they were the only things that the media focused on. And he was attacked mercilessly, and notwithstanding being attacked every day, he got up every day, focused on what had to get done, and he did his job. And you know, I think I think history will be kind to him. And uh, speaking of the media, when you were uh, the ambassador in Israel, how was the Israeli media generally? Pretty tough. I mean, uh, the, the left-wing Israeli media uh, was uh, was very tough, and, and and some of them were based in the United States as well. I mean, there, there were times when 
uh, I'd read about myself, and I didn't recognize who they were writing about. I mean, stories that just had no no connection to reality. Um, uh, it's it's. Um, I, I spoke once with a. Uh, I went to complain once to an Israeli reporter, and I said, "You know, this is just fake. It's wrong. Why, why are you writing this stuff for? And you're writing it about me at a time when you know I got like important things to do for Israel. I'm trying to help Israel." And you know, he said, "Well, we're always balancing the competing needs of getting it fast and getting it right." And I said, "Well, is there any other profession in the world where somebody can say that? Can you imagine going in for an operation, and the doctor says to you, well, you know, I got the operating room for a half an hour. I'll do the best I can, but a half an hour, you're out of here.' You know, that's, you know I can't. I got, I got to do this within a certain amount of time. Uh, whether I get it right or not is, uh, is is secondary. And no other profession in the world could you could you get something wrong." just because you wanted to get it done fast. But that seems to be the uh, the ethics in, in, in the media, certainly in Israel and, and elsewhere, too. Look, there were some good reporters in Israel. There were some good reporters. There's good media here, too. But, but it can be tough. It can be really tough. The book is called Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. It's a very fascinating book, very intriguing. I think you'll be able to read through it fairly quickly. Once you get started, you're not going to want to put it down. You can get it on Amazon.com. It comes out tomorrow. So if you order it tonight, you'll get it tomorrow. Any retail store as well. Um, it's a lot, hell of a lot better than the 1619 Project. But then again, that's a low standard, isn't it? But that's always up near the top. So I want to encourage you to get this book, Sledgehammer. It is really the first comprehensive discussion about what took place, how peace broke out, what the administration did, and how the administration did it in really an extraordinarily complex and complicated part of the world. And now, actually, it's all an attempt by this administration. At least they're trying to undo it, which is absolutely uh, insane. So you can go to Amazon.com sledgehammer. Now, during the break, while you have a moment, head over to Amazon.com and grab your copy of Sledgehammer. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East by former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. David Friedman, uh, you get back to Israel, and uh, I guess you talk to the Israelis there. Are they feeling a little nervous about administration policy, and do they wish you and the Trump administration was back? Yeah, that's the view of the ones I speak with. I mean, President Trump... uh, uh, was more popular in Israel than any other country on the planet, um, and for good reason. You know, uh, for the first time among any president, uh, he stood with Israel. You know, he recognized that Israel was a, uh, uh, a, a critical ally of the United States. It was a vibrant democracy. It had uh, incredible amounts to offer America in terms of uh, uh, in terms of science and technology and healthcare. It had um, incredible uh, intelligence capabilities that it shared freely with America, like it shared with no other country. Uh, Israel, uh, as I've spoken to many people in the U.S. government, who've confirmed to me that Israel uh, does a lot to keep Americans safe on our own homeland. Israel has uh, provided America with insights and intelligence that has kept. Americans safe in their own homeland. So, you know, the Israelis uh, saw in President Trump someone who really got them, who understood them, who understood the neighborhood in which they were living. And, um, and, and you know, uh, I, I received a lot of that, you know, reflective uh, glory as well as being his representative in Israel. And uh, and I have great respect for the uh, Israeli people. Look, look you know, Mark, um, 
there's there's lots of real politic reasons for America to be uh, to be supportive of Israel, but there's something more, right? Which is, you know, the Judeo-Christian values that made our country so great. They they were born in Israel. They were born uh, in the Bible. The the founders of our country used the Bible as a guidepost to form a Declaration of Independence, to form the view of of, of unalienable rights that that were created by God. So, you know, the, the further you know we get from Israel, the the further we get from our Judeo-Christian values, the weaker we become as a nation, and we can't let that happen. And, and this alliance between the United States and Israel, it may not be the most important alliance, but it's pretty close to it in terms of the most impo- in terms of you know U.S. Uh, diplomatic relations. And I was extremely proud and, and lucky to to serve a president who saw it the way I did about the importance of strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship. Well, you did a fantastic job as the ambassador. You had probably more authority than any other ambassador to ever serve in that position, frankly, and I think it mattered greatly. You have a great uh, history and knowledge of the United States and the state of Israel and that whole area of the world, and I think that helped a lot, too. And um, I think this book is absolutely superb. I hope people will get it as quickly as they can. Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. I talk a lot about that part of the world here more than probably most hosts do because I know what that's about. I know about the birth of humanity. I also know about uh, the destructive forces in many respects that are born out of that part of the world. And, you know, I don't, I don't do it, Mr. Ambassador, to the exclusion of the other parts of the world, but I just think it doesn't get the proper attention it deserves. And when it gets attention from newspapers like the New York Times and so forth, people aren't getting much facts from that newspaper. Every time Hamas attacked Israel, in the end, it was Israel's fault, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and uh, and, and a good number, you know, a, a large number, unfortunately, of, uh, of members of the United States Congress and, and even people in the State Department uh, don't understand that um, that when Israel is attacked by Hamas, they have a sacred obligation to their people to fight back, to end the spray of rockets and to uh, into residential areas. I mean, they think that uh, you know Israel has to somehow handcuff itself because it might uh, it might result in some some innocent death. But it's the it's Hamas that's that's beginning this process. It's Hamas that's hiding behind civilian populations. It's Hamas that seeks to kill as many civilians as possible. And somehow people um, draw an equivalency between Israel and Hamas in these in these unfortunate battles. And it it, it couldn't be more it couldn't be a more immoral. Uh, decision by, unfortunately, people that uh, occupy senior positions in, in the American government. Well, we want, I want to thank you again for your uh, outstanding service. I want to thank you for this outstanding book, uh, Ambassador David Freeman. God bless you, my friend. Well, God bless you, Mark, and thank you for the time. I enjoyed uh, very my much pleasure. our conversation. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Take care of yourself. Folks, strongly, I want to encourage you, go to Amazon.com, grab a copy of this. I think your eyes will be widely open on what a success this was. And I want to salute all you heroes out there. Thank you. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. The book is Sledgehammer, and I will see you tomorrow.